Well, hello, Bridgeway. How are you all doing? Uh, I want you to know it's a privilege and an honor to be here uh, speaking and opening uh, God's truth to you uh, this weekend. And uh, it's going to be a great time together. And uh, wherever you're at, we want you to feel free to participate as God leads you to participate in this. So, Well, um, I was thinking recently, uh, and then again this morning, just about the ancient kings of the nation of Israel and Judah. And one of the things that catches my attention, and it's actually pretty chilling and it's sobering, is that oftentimes you will read something to this effect about these kings. So-and-so started really well. So-and-so did follow the Lord and did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but then he didn't do it with a full heart. Or you'll read something like this, so-and-so followed the Lord, but he was not fully devoted. Or so-and-so walked in the steps of his father, who was a good man, but he didn't really follow through. And I think what catches my attention is that maybe like you, I find it all too easy to slip into a faith which is ho-hum, vanilla, dull, insipid, boring. At times you kind of feel like, well, somewhere, you know, I, this is not the, 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 the kind of faith that I was wanting. And everything I know about my faith, everything I know about having a relationship with Jesus Christ tells me this that this relationship with him is designed to be stimulating, engaging, exciting. I'm not saying it's the buzz to end all the world's buzzes, but I am trying to say this. There ought to be something authentic, real, vital, and engaging with our faith. And I think for this to happen, somewhere along the line, maybe in several places, the lights have to come on in a different way. You have to see things a little bit differently. And as we're in a passage today that we're going to be looking at in the book of Ephesians, I think what's gonna happen is you're gonna see some light bulbs come on, and I hope that they do come on for you. You're gonna see something take place as we engage these truths, as we talk about them, that should be exciting. Wilbur Rees uh, had a little uh, uh, piece he wrote about this idea of a dull, kind of boring, uh, complacent faith. He says this, I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or to disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a warm cup of milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of him to make me love a black person or a white person or to pick beets with a migrant farm worker. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Man, if that's your faith, and sometimes it's been my faith, I think as we look at this text today, it's gonna to change. As you know, uh, this year at Bridgeway, we've been in a year of connection, and uh, we're looking at what it means to connect with God and to connect with each other, and we're using the New Testament letter of Paul to the Ephesians to kind of speak into these issues. We've been tracing how God connects us with himself and connects us together with each other, and also in the first part of the book of Ephesians, we've been looking at spiritual advantages that Paul says are around that connection with God. And we've been kind of tracking those uh, as they uh, occur. But last week, Paul turns a corner. It's like Paul downshifts. And he wants to get a different kind of traction into these things. And so uh, we're gonna look at this because at this point in the book of Ephesians, Paul hits his knees. So would you follow along with me as I read through Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 15, which Matt so well talked about last weekend, and will just give us some context. Paul writes and he says this, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints, 
I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Paul is laboring in prayer. He's kind of talked about some things, but he hits his knees and he begins to pray for the people in and around the city of Ephesus, that they would have a deeper and wider heart knowledge of Christ. And how tragic would it be if we didn't have that? How tragic would it be if people only had an intellectual grasp of who Jesus was? As Matt explained last week, hey, God wants us to go far beyond just a head knowledge. He wants that to translate into our hearts, to be an experiential kind of knowledge with Jesus. And you know what? I was thinking about this, I was thinking, how mind-blowing is this? That right here, the Apostle Paul is praying for us too. I don't know if you remember this, but you may recall that the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, is what we term a circular letter in the New Testament. The words in Ephesus are actually not placed in some of the best and earliest manuscripts. It's left blank. The idea behind that is that Paul was probably not writing to a specific church, but to several churches in the area around Ephesus, and that churches could plug their name in, kind of like a fill in the blank, so that it would apply to them. There's a lack of personal kind of uh, information that Paul normally has in his letters. And scholars think, hey, this was probably something that was spoken to the church universal. And here's what I take away from that. What Paul writes here is for every church in every time, in every language, in every place. Paul is talking to us. And when he prays here, Paul is praying for us. It blows your mind. So as Paul is driven to pray, let's dive in here, and we're going to kind of look at mainly one verse here, but again, I'm going to read through the context and even get into verse 19 just to give it a rounded kind of context. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, again, he begins, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, might give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the true knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you might know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. Now we're gonna settle in verse 18 here, but let me highlight the emphasis for you very, very quickly. The purpose behind knowing Jesus, the very purpose behind knowing Jesus is to deepen and to widen that connection with him. That's what he says. And in widening that connection, what Paul hopes will happen is that we will gain a greater comprehension. So if you have the outline at home, you wanna fill in the blanks, you knew that kind of person, here's how I would say it. That a deeper knowledge and a wider knowledge of Jesus facilitates greater comprehension. Greater comprehension. So I don't know if you realized, or or as you were reading along, maybe you realized this, that this whole section is literally dripping with cognitive terms, terms that describe knowledge or wisdom. Did you notice that? Paul talks about wisdom and revelation in the knowledge. These are all different words in the Greek language. Wisdom, revelation, knowledge. And then in verse 18, Paul adds a new term, the eyes of your heart being enlightened, enlightened. What does Paul mean by this? Well, he's talking about the internal illumination 
that God gives when we intellectually begin to understand truth, and then it begins to go to a deeper level in our hearts and in our lives. The heart was considered the seat of reflection and comprehension in the ancient world, this kind of inner illumination that Paul wanted uh, uh, his readers to have and wants us to have. But there's another facet of this. Paul uses the perfect tense here, which means it's a completed action with continuing results. So the action's completed, but then the results of that action continue to roll out in the lives of people. The eyes of your hearts being enlightened. This is a light bulb word. This is when the lights come on in a person's life. And then Paul adds one more term, in order that, and he phrases it as purpose, in order that you might know. This is another Greek word. So five different Greek words used here for cognitive kinds of things. The word is a very interesting word in the Greek language, adenai, and it comes from the Greek word oida. Now, the Greeks had two different words to talk about seeing something. They had a word blepo, which talks about physical seeing. Like, I see the ball, I see the car, I see the trees, I see the people. It kind of talks about physically being able to see. But there's also another word for see, and that's this word oida. And what it means is to see the significance underneath the surface of that which we are seeing. It's the idea of understanding, comprehending, seeing something at a little bit different level. Now, to illustrate, I've got a picture up here uh, on the screen, and you can see this picture. It's a picture of a man. Pretty easy to see that. But if we just turn that picture horizontally, watch what happens. Ah, the light bulb comes on, doesn't it? You see something different. When it's vertical, it's one thing. When it's turned horizontal, you see something entirely different. And that's exactly what Paul's talking about here. It is the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of God's people that illuminates truth to them, that brings it to light, that allows the light bulb to come on for them as they are thinking about it. And you remember, Jesus promised this in the coming of the Holy Spirit. In John 14 and in John 16, Jesus said, the Holy Spirit's going to come. He's going to teach you all things. The Holy Spirit's going to come and he's going to guide you and lead you and teach you into all truth. Now, Jesus isn't talking about the fact the Holy Spirit's gonna tell us every bit of factual knowledge in the universe. That's not what he's meaning. In fact, if you look at the context closely, Jesus talks about the fact that the Holy Spirit will take things of Jesus, his words, his works, his life, and will tell you all the things about that. Will reveal all the truth about Jesus. Will open him up to our understanding and our comprehension in a different kind of way. You know, uh, a couple of years ago, my wife lost the, the diamond out of her engagement ring, out of her wedding ring, and, uh, and we never replaced it until recently. So recently, we went into the, the jewelers, and we were looking at diamonds, and, uh, and the guy came out, and he showed us this particular diamond that, that you know, he thought would be really good for us, and, uh, and I learned some things about diamonds, because I look at a diamond, and I'm like, okay, it's a diamond. But Sherry looks at a diamond, and she sees something entirely different. Right? And the guy begins to describe the four C's of a diamond, right? Ladies, you know this. Guys, you probably don't. Well, maybe you do. But anyhow, the four C's, remember? Color, clarity, cut, and maybe the most important one, carrot. <laughs> right? These are different dimensions of the same thing. And in the same way, Jesus said the Holy Spirit would come and he would give light 
through different facets of who Jesus was. He would extend our ideas and our knowledge of what Jesus did and who he was and what he said and would guide us into all the truth that we would need about Jesus. And what Paul prays here for these believers and for us is simply this, that we would get this, that we would get it, that we would fully comprehend and understand this, these great truths. So what is it that Paul wants us to get? What is he so excited about us making sure that we get? Well, there are three light bulb truths in this passage that, uh, that we're going to look at. Let me read it again for you. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you might know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. So here's the three things. The hope to which he has called us, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and then thirdly, the immeasurable greatness of his power. Today I'm gonna to look at the first two of these things, and Brian's gonna tackle the final thing in this next week, but uh, this is just rich stuff. So let's look at this first one, all right? And let me spell it out for you. Paul prays that they would fully understand and that we would fully understand the hope that we bring to the world. Let's drill down into this for just a moment. The translation here is a very difficult kind of translation, and I know people sometimes look at this verse and they go, oh, Paul wants the Ephesians and he wants us to have hope. He wants us to feel hope. Eh, thank you for playing, but that's wrong. Here's what literally it says, the hope of his calling. The hope of his calling. So I want you to think for just a moment, what has God called us to? What is it he's called us to? Well, first off, he's called us to belong to himself, to develop a deep, inner, spiritual, lifelong connection with him. But there's something else he calls us to alongside that. He calls us to be part of a people, part of a family, part of a community. The moment we connect ourselves to Christ, he calls us to be part of something called the church, God's family, his people. He also calls us to this, to participate in that family, to play a role in that family, to contribute to that family. That's the calling. Do you get this? I mean, do you really get this? This is not just an individual calling, it is a calling to a group of people. And what God calls us to is simply this, that we would be the hope of the world. That our existence as God's people connected him that we would offer hope to the rest of the world. And I hope it's not lost on you that right now we are living in extraordinary times. These are extraordinary days right now. And you know what we're called to do as God's people? Inject hope. We're to inject hope in the world around us. Not just in these tough times, but to inject hope in all the times that we live. And so in, inside of this, what I want you to understand is that our calling is not an individual calling. We read this individually. Our calling is a collective calling, a calling together as the church, the body of Christ, the family of God, God's people. Our calling is to a community together. You know, one of the things we have to resist, quite frankly, is we have to resist this idea that um, whenever we read the Bible, everything in there is individual. We do that sometimes. 
We think everything that we read in the Bible, well, that's just for me. That's just what God is trying to say to me. And that's not necessarily true. Think about it this way if you can, and I'm just gonna throw out a couple things for you to you know, just kind of chew on and think about. Reading the Bible by yourself is a relatively new activity in church history. Reading the Bible by yourself is a new activity. It's relatively recent in church history. Back in the times of Paul and Jesus and in the Old Testament, people did not have individual Bibles. They couldn't afford them. The materials were expensive. They were very rare. You couldn't get a hold of those materials. Very few people had access to reading. And so the culture that Jesus lived in and the culture that Paul lived in was what we call a hearing-dominant culture. People would hear that read. When they would, would, would hear Paul's letter, it would be done in a group of people, in a community together. And then what would happen in that community as they read it is they would talk about it, discuss it, digest it, try to figure out what Paul meant. All the interpretation would be done together in that group. And of course it would be facilitated by the person who, who probably carried the letter to that group of people. But largely they would hear this message. And I don't know if you understand this, but sometimes when we read a passage, have you ever had the experience that when, when one of us reads a passage up here, or you hear someone else read a passage and you only hear it, that it sometimes sounds different to you than when you read it by yourself? And here's the thing I'd like you to think about. If you only read the Bible by yourself, and I don't know, maybe you're someone who, who only goes to church online, or maybe only watches your favorite pastor on TV, that you're getting a very, very narrow perspective on biblical truth. And in fact, what I'd like you to think about is that you might actually even be cheating yourself out of the richness of the insights of others that they might have on these great truths that God gives to us in the Bible. That's why around here we push missional communities. It's why we encourage people. We want you to get into a group. We want you to be involved in a group of people who are studying and learning and growing and praying together. We think it's absolutely vital for the experience of Christian faith and absolutely vital for the experience of a full picture of Jesus. And man, we're all the richer because of the insights others have on truth that we ourselves aren't sometimes able to see or to get. And when we hear it in a group, the light bulb comes on, right? Sometimes it just comes on because we're like, oh, that's what it means. So let me give you a picture, a word picture of our collective calling, and here it is. We are a prototype. God's people, the family, the community, we're a prototype of the new world that God is introducing, the new reordering of the world under Jesus. We are the prototype of what that looks like to the world. This alternative kind of community, what it looks like, how we live. You know, a, a prototype is a working model, right? So we're the working model. God is using us together in our collective calling to inject hope into the world. You know, the world is actually really tired of listening to us as Christians. In fact, they probably turned us off. They have heard us talk and talk and talk and talk and talk, and they have not seen us live it consistently all the time. And here's what's happened in our culture today. They've just said, wah, 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 wah. I'm not listening anymore. But they are galvanized by people who are authentic 
and real who live out their faith in the push and the shove of everyday life, of disappointment, discouragement, victory, heartache. When they watch that happen, it becomes a working model of what God wants to do in the lives of people. And the world around us is watching us. They're watching to see how we live, how we connect with each other, how we interact with each other, how we solve conflicts with each other, how we support one another, how we encourage one another. They are watching us. And when they see it happen, real, when it's authentic, they look at us and they go, I want what he's having. I want what she's having. I want that. And it becomes powerful. Tertullian, who was a a church historian uh, back in the second century AD, wrote about Christians and he wrote defending who Christians were. He talked about their lifestyle. At the very end, he just says this little phrase, look, see how they love each other. See how they love each other. It became a powerful, powerful witness to the world around them. But I want you to know this too. Our impact is more than just passive. It's more than just the world watching us. We are exporters of hope to the world. We export hope to them. When we reach out, when we hold a community closet, when we take teams to to Africa and to Mexico and to other parts of the world, when we engage with children in our ministries, we export hope to the rest of the world around us. And when we reach out and we extend ourselves, then we become a community with a cause. We become a community with a cause. One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament comes out of the book of 2 Kings in the seventh chapter. It's a story of four lepers. During that time, the ancient nation of the king, uh, excuse me, the nation of Israel, which is the northern kingdom after the kingdom split, the northern kingdom, their capital was in Samaria. And the commander of the country of Syria decided to lay siege to the capital of Samaria. And it was bad. It was really bad. As the siege wore on, there was no food. People were having to resort to cannibalism. Uh, All kinds of things were going on. And one day during the siege, there are these four lepers, and they're sitting outside the city because they're not allowed in the city. They have leprosy, so they have to be separated, isolated from everybody else. You can kind of feel what that's like. And they're outside the city, and uh, and they start talking among themselves. And, And these four lepers, because they couldn't be part of God's people, they form their own little community, the leper community. And they're sitting outside talking, and they start talking to one another. They say, listen, we're going to die if we stay here. If we go into the city, the famine's great there. We're going to die there. So they're looking around. They're going to die here, die there, die, die everywhere. And they say, let's take a chance, and let's go to the army of the Syrians, and let's, let's just throw ourselves on their mercy. And we'll take our chances there, because this is certain death that we stay here and certain death that we go into the city. It's just not going to work. So these four lepers head towards the Syrian camp. As they get close, and before they get there, God sends a spirit over the camp of the Syrians. And they all of a sudden hear noise, and they think that that the uh, nation of Israel has hired mercenaries, maybe Egypt, or, or maybe the Assyrians to come in, the Hittites, somebody like that, come in and, and fight for them. And all the soldiers of the Syrian army, they, they leave, man. They just hightail it out of there. They leave everything behind. Donkeys, horses, all their stuff, all the tents are still set up. I mean, they just take off. Well, by the time these four lepers get there, nobody's there. They walk into the camp and it's like, 
nobody's there. And there's all kinds of food and there's all kinds of wealth and there's all kinds of stuff and they start eating and they start drinking. They fill themselves up. And then they take some stuff and they, they, they take it over and they bury it in the ground to save it for later. And they sit back. And then I think God begins to speak to them and they have this little conscience attack. And they look around and they think, we're not doing the right thing. We're not doing the right thing. Oh, there's all of this stuff and in the city people are dying. And we're just doing all this for ourselves. And we're eating and drinking, and we've got it, and it's great, we got ours, but the people in the city, they're dying. And they're like, we're not doing the right thing. So they go back to the city, and they call out to the people on the, the wall, and they're like, hey, the, the, the Syrians are gone. They left. But the people don't believe them because they're like, oh, no, it's just an ambush. You know, they want to draw us out, and then they want to cut us off and ambush that type of thing. But eventually, the, uh, the king gives in. He says, okay, send out a contingent of soldiers. Check this out. So they, they go out, and they see that the camp is empty. And then they open the doors to the city, and everybody floods out. And there's great revelry, and there's great victory, and there's tremendous joy, and the people are eating, and they're drinking again. And the whole city is saved. Now, this isn't in the text, but I imagine these four lepers watching all this. And I have this sense that they are, they're sitting there saying to themselves, man, we did the right thing. We did the right thing. It would be easy for us at Bridgeway to sit here and say, we have great teaching and we have great worship and, and we have great community that's going on here, but we really are a community with a cause to reach the world around us in this local community and borders beyond. We export hope to the world, and that's the calling that God has given us before him. And Paul is on his knees saying, man, I want you to get this. I want you to understand the hope of your calling that God has given to you. There's a second thing in here, and I'm going to hit this very, very briefly. He wants them to fully understand the value that we add to God as his people. He wants us to fully understand the value that we add to God as part of his people, the richness that he has in us as his people. So let's drill down a little bit further into this as well. Notice here he says, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. That's the second thing. The riches of the glory. Now I want you to notice he says the riches of the glory of the inheritance, not the riches of the inheritance. This word glory is a very fascinating word. In Greek it's doxa, but doxa gets its meaning from the Old Testament Hebrew word kavod. And literally the word means to be made heavy or to be heavy. We used to use this term. It means to have impact, weight, gravitas. We used to use this word when I was growing up of, uh, of, of different people. We'd say like, oh man, that's a heavy dude. Oh, oh, that's a heavy truth, right? And what we're meaning by it is simply, man, it has tremendous weight and influence on our lives. So the immense richness that God possesses are in his people. That's what makes God rich, by the way. What makes God rich are the relationships and the people who are his followers. 
we add richness to God by belonging to him. Plain and simple. Those of you who are kids, you know this. The moment those children come out of the womb, they're part of your life. And you feel rich because they're part of your life. I mean, you feel like you just won the lottery. It's awesome. Our kids and our grandkids, we, when, when each one came out, man, we just felt like, oh, we're all the richer. So we add weight to God. We add to his glory. We add to his richness by just belonging to him. But we also add to his richness in another way, by the contributions we make to advancing the cause of Christ in the world around us. So I have kids and I also have grandchildren. And one of the most amazing things, and it thrills my heart to no end, is when they, when they, um, when they make contributions to the effort. My son and my daughter-in-law both have nonprofits. They are reaching people in the world. And there's nothing better, and some of you know this, when your kids grow up and they start finding their place in the world and they're advancing the cause of Christ in the world and it just makes you feel richer. There's another way too. If God's riches is in relationships and in people, then the more people that get in on this, the better. So God not only wants to improve the quality of the relationships of his people that they have with him, but he also wants to see them expand the pool of people that get a chance to belong to him and to connect to him. And it thrills his heart to, to no end, to have more and more and more sons and daughters that are part of the family. Now, here's the secret. I'm gonna end real quick here with this. The secret is this, God always uses people to reach people. God uses his people to reach other people who are outside the family. It's always been that way. It will always be that way. God doesn't use, you know, lightning strikes. God doesn't use, you know, writing messages in the heavens. God uses his people to reach other people. You remember the game hide and seek? Hide and seek, that great kids game, you know, where, uh, you know, everybody hides and the person who's it has to go out and they have to find those people. And when they find them, they tag them, you know, and it's a bummer. Well, there's a different game. I don't know if you've ever played this one. It's called Sardines. And here's how it works. The person who's it actually goes and hides. And everybody else has to find them. And when they find them, they hide with them in that space. And one person hides, and the next person hides, and the next person hides. And you wind up with this ball of giggling mass of people. And it's joyful. God is much more into sardines than he is into hide and seek. And so Paul prays here for us, please get this. I'm on my knees, I want you to get this more than anything else. And so since Paul prayed, I think it's only appropriate for us to just spend some time right here at the end to pray as well together. So could I invite you to join me as we pray together? And I'm just gonna walk through this very, very quickly, and if this is you, I pray that you will respond to God right where you're sitting, right where you are, right where you're hearing this this weekend. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, we look at this passage and we realize that Paul was so wanting us to get it. And Lord, I pray for the people here at Bridgeway that every single one of us would have the lights go on, that we would truly comprehend and understand, not just with our hearts, but with our actions, how much that we mean to you and how much we mean to the world. 
for you have made us the hope of the world. And Lord, if there are people who are sitting there who have been disconnected from you and they're very far away from you, I pray that maybe for the first time they will consider what it would mean to belong to you and they will give you their hearts and their lives. I pray for those who have isolated themselves, have self-quarantined themselves from God, have pushed God away, and I pray that you would just allow them to draw near to you, Lord. Maybe for the first time, but maybe for the first time in a long time. Lord, I pray for those who maybe settled for less, who settled for a, I don't know, a vanilla kind of ho-hum faith, that they would feel your energy and that Holy Spirit, you would fire them up again. And then finally, Lord, I pray for those who have been sold out to you and who are still sold out, that you would expand their faith again and again and again and again. And at the end of this, Lord, that we would all be this huge community that lives in you and loves you to the end of our days. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.